This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. If you think a story is true, you should be able to make it true. And if you have a feeling that things went down a certain way, they probably went down a certain way. That was the voice of David Carr, the longtime media reporter for the New York Times and also the person who launched their carpetbagger uh, feature during award season several years back. David unfortunately passed away abruptly last night in the newsroom at the New York Times after moderating a conversation with Edward Snowden, of all people, and the team behind the documentary Citizen Four. Anne and I both knew David, and more than me, but we also were very uh, cognizant and appreciative of, of his impact in the film scene. So we talk a little bit about him and his impact and, and why he mattered in, in this week's uh, podcast, which is dedicated to his memory. We also dig into Oscar season, which is probably, hopefully, almost over, uh, just a week and a half from now with the, the ceremony right around the corner, and we'll be going to that. But there's still a lot that we don't know in terms of where the race is, is heading, and so we dig into a lot of the unknown variables now, and then we turn to new releases, including some small, obscure movie called Fifty Shades of Grey. Remember, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes for weekly updates. You can also leave a review there and let us know what you think. And you can submit feedback to us on Twitter. I'm at Eric Cohn, and Ann Thompson is at AK Stanwick. Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the deputy editor and chief film critic, here as always with Ann Thompson from Thompson and Hollywood. Now, Ann, before we get into uh, some of the livelier aspects of our podcast, the things that we talk about each week, you know, Oscar race, new movies, all that kind of stuff, I think we need to start with one of the sadder developments of note. Uh, which is something that just happened not too long ago, and that's the unfortunate passing of David Carr from the New York Times, the uh, longtime media reporter and also the person behind the Carpetbagger column, the original version of it, the New York Times uh, Oscar coverage approach. And uh, just a really fascinating character. He was the subject of Page One, the uh, documentary about the Times, and just this really fascinating force of nature who showed up on the scene just a couple of years ago to remind us, I think, on some level, what journalists can do when they, you know, maintain certain kinds of standards and, and a commitment to, to the craft at hand. Now, I met David a couple of times, and I thought he was, you know, an incredible presence on the film festival circuit because it showed you the extent to which, you know, somebody can go into that environment and legitimize a lot of the stories that the rest of the world didn't know anything about. But, uh, and you got to know him a little bit better than me. What was your take on David and why he was so valuable for this profession? Well, I actually first got to know him because he was engaged and curious enough about the Internet and the art of blogging um, that he took on uh, the carpetbagger. He created it, really, the uh, Oscar blog at the 
New York Times. And so he did it briefly. He didn't stick with it because he he knew um, that he had serious, more serious fish to fry. He learned what he had to learn out of it, got what he got out of it. But I got to to know him on the circuit. And he was very early on, you know, doing video and putting himself out as a personality very early on Twitter, uh, very active on Twitter, understood how to use it, you know, to um, extend his own brand. And in fact, at a certain point, I, I wrote a story that someone just reminded me of, no account sent it to me, and I had forgotten that <laughs> I wrote it, where I was pointing out that at that time, um, the New York Times and various other media entities had so many Twitter followers. And in fourth place on this list was David Carr right. himself beating the L.A. Times, right. you know, entirely. Totally. And I mean, that just that just gives you some sense. He just had a gift and understood part of why he was such a brilliant media columnist was that he he had the integrity you're talking about. And even inside the L.A. Times, they appreciated his his extraordinary, transparent um, um, combination of of devotion to the New York Times and the standards of the newspaper. He was, a you know, an inveterate, you know, deep. Uh, committed newspaper man, but at the same time, because of his history, because he had battled crack addiction, and he went and wrote this book, um, The Year of the Gun, where he actually uh, re-interviewed everybody that he thought he remembered their stories, and, and re-interviewed them to make sure that, that he had it right. right. You know, terrible stories of leaving his children in the car when he went to score crack, you know, just awful stuff. And he came through that. He came around that. He had absolutely lovely wife, wonderful daughters, you know, incredible father. And but partly because he'd gone through this experience, it made him one of those people that you just completely trusted was telling you the straight dope. You know, he was not bullshitting around. He wasn't um he had no other agendas but to just do his work, and he was open and curious. And he, he, I loved him for that. I loved him for being that kind of journalist who would invite other journalists to come over to the Driscoll at South by Southwest on a on a on a meet. You know, one of those Twitter meetups things. And I showed up, and there I met you know Yancey Strickler of Kickstarter and all these other people who were really smart and really cool who I never would have otherwise uh, you know met at that point, and and um, and you know helped me to be ahead uh, of my on my game. And he was very generous and supportive, and I had coffee with him in New York, and he would pick my brain, you know, and right. I would pick his. It was wonderful. And and the other thing that I think is interesting about that is so David's career, you know, kind of got its momentum a little bit late because of the the kind of things that he went through earlier in his 20s and his 30s. But he really arrived at this really crucial point in the kind of history of the media landscape. You know, there were all these sort of uh, dour prognostications about the future of the profession, whether it's being a journalist or being a critic. And I think what David was able to show is that with the right kind of legitimate skills and, and the curiosity and sort of the willingness to, like, bring pride to what you do, you can show the value of professional journalism as opposed to, you know, taking a more sort of casual, non-professional approach and saying, you know, this is the future. I think, you know, what, what you. you know, Carr was able to do, even with the Oscar coverage. And oh, he did it really well. He did it masterfully. And, yeah. and I was I appreciated the fact um, um, 
that the more recent uh, carpetbagger who wrote about him, uh, Kara Buckley, she 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 admitted that he kind of took her aside at the beginning. Impressed with everybody, you know. You know, keep keep a little distance here. You know, he he was never going to shill uh, for for anybody. And and uh, you I, can see I, it in page one. There's a great scene early on, which you you can find on YouTube, and we link. They're to spreading it, and, it around the vice yeah, scene. The yeah, vice yeah. scene where that where they try to say that you know the New York Times is not doing what they're doing overseas, and he just takes them out. Out of nowhere, because I think they, they were expecting... He wasn't going to let them yeah. get away with that. And yeah. then he came back and admitted that, you know, he had underestimated them. And, and he was willing to, to do that, right. too. But even the New York Times would bring him in to almost be their ombudsman and write about some of the dr- trickier Jason Blair and sure. other stories. That, sure, uh, and he, you know, wrote about Brian Williams just last week in a really interesting way. That that's I think maybe his really... last column, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah um, but it's an interesting way to go out to really cut through the media narrative to see... The reality of, of, of what actually happened there. And I, I wonder if maybe it would make the most sense for us to dedicate this episode to David and, and take as a starting point for talking about award season now, something that uh, Sasha Stone uh, from Awards Daily wrote about recently, because she, she posted a, a terrific piece on Carr and her own relationship to him and how he He was of, very nice to her. I yeah. didn't know that he had given her transcribing work and so forth, right. and she wasn't well, doing well. Right, and, and sort of legitimized what she was doing as an Oscar blogger to the point where she realized she could make a career out of it. And uh, she says that he felt that boyhood uh, was too subtle for voters. David, David did not think that Boyhood was a front-runner for Best Picture. So maybe we should take that as a starting point for digging into, as, as we grow increasingly weary near the finish line here, uh, where the race is at at this point. Well, um, what I'm weary of in general, you know, what what goes on at this time of year is that you see the the New York Times and the L.A. Times and all these outlets just chart, you know, throwing out more and we're doing it too at IndieWire God knows you know throwing out more and more content because everybody's interested still except me I am not interested I am done I am so bored and so (laughs) tired because I did it so long ago I mean I started in January with Boyhood I started at the Eccles seeing it for the first time and you know doing those interviews at the opening and you know being part of, of that story obviously but but um, and at this point, you know, if I'm invited to go cover another Q and A, I'm like, I'm done. I've been there and I've done that, and I'm not going to another, uh, you know, promotional event. And I understand that everybody has to has to do their things, and I still have some stories to put up. But anyway, boyhood. The thing about the what's interesting to me right now isn't so much the promotional surge, but the uh, fact that the race itself is really um, not over and and it's a, an interesting year and it's an unusual year there is no obvious front runner there is no um clear uh uh sweep there there's going to be splits there's going to be uh, a spreading of the wealth uh, inevitably and it isn't um no one who tells you that they know what's going to win best picture i can say to you my instincts tell me or based on the signs or based on um, how the various people I've run into are talking about it, you know, I can say that I believe that Boyhood does have a strong um, backing, even though it 
small and indie and and doesn't have all the bells and whistles that Birdman or Budapest have or Sniper um, or Imitation Game or Theory of Everything or Selma, any of them has more going on, obviously. But what Boyhood still has is that unique ability to make us uh, feel something about uh, a family. Well, and I have to say, I, no matter They've how... been marketing it very well in that sure. regard. Sure. I mean, and it's, if, if IFC is going to throw whatever resources they have into something, it's going to be this right now. I mean, I, I would say, you know, even... But going... that said, Eric, that in no way can they compare no, to spending... They can't. And that other not, people and, are playing on, and they shouldn't. No, and they don't. Because bu- buying boyhood is boyhood isn't what's going to make it win. Well, boyhood they, is what it is, and they can just have to sit back. All they can do is sit back and cross their fingers. But, but they may not be able to buy that when other people are trying to buy around it in some ways. You know, if you look, and they're sending out the memes, rate. negative memes about well, it. Well, yeah, I mean, and, and speaking of the New York Times, I mean, there was an essay yes. last week. Uh, that should have been an interesting piece about, you know, other kinds of films that capture uh, the passage of time by talking about Michael Apted's Up series. Instead, it it had this weirdly negative tone that was sort of saying, no, Boyhood isn't that original. Up was original, but this isn't. And it felt like such a plant, you know. And then I agree. You I look couldn't at the, agree more. The other things that Searchlight's been doing with Birdman recently, I got a hologram in the mail the other day that lets you see Michael Keaton's face with and without the Birdman. Yeah, mask. yeah, they sent they, that around. Yeah, they, they launched a, and- another site with all these different pictures from the film it's a weirdly interactive kind of a thing i mean they're pushing really hard up to the finish line in in very snazzy ways that boyhood is is not doing and so no and it wouldn't be appropriate it just wouldn't be appropriate but but at the same time i mean you have a situation where you look at the different guilds and you see what won and you it makes sense in a way you know you look at it and yes enter it to one you know, director and at the DGA. And yes, you know, it won, Birdman won the ensemble. I mean, just finally the acting in Birdman in that context and with that degree of difficulty, it makes sense that the actors would respect that and give it the ensemble prize. Yeah. And it makes sense that Eddie Redmayne gave the showiest performance with Theory of Everything. And if you think about SAG, you could imagine that they would say, well, we're going to give Birdman the ensemble and Redmayne uh, the single. You know, so, so you can see that, that there's, there's, you know, BAFTA went for their boy. They went for their British boy. They, that makes sense. Yeah. What's interesting at BAFTA is the way that Theory of Everything is out performing imitation game which is losing steam and how it, it you know there's a i'm looking at my oscar ballot and i'm figuring it out and i'm wondering if those two british biopics just don't knock each other out yeah. and end up with nothing well they are pretty you know small tame or at least traditional movies compared to these other two that we're talking about but they about. play well to the academy remember eric remember you're a critic your taste is way higher brow. What was the term and, again? Casual? The, no, I'm trying to remind you. <laughs> I'm trying to remind you that, that that those two movies are perfect Academy fodder. Even if you dismiss if, if they if they're too mainstream for you. Right. Well I one of the things that's interesting is that uh, you know, speaking of, of David Carr, I I think he was the one 
who made the crash call in that year when everybody else thought it was going to be Brokeback Mountain? Because he was listening. Yeah. He was listening, and that was one of his great skills, which I admire him for, and which I should, of course, pay heed to as well. You know, and li- you know, I do listen. There, I, there was a, a a funny picture of me and D- Jonathan Dana at the indie at some indie water right. party that we had after Sundance, and I'm like. <laughs> <laughs> blathering on and he's listening but i listened to him and he's one of you know he he tells me he's among the many who tells me you know what he's voting for yeah. and, and i listen right. you know so did david well, carr and, and and crash was a movie that also like boyhood showed up early in the year also like boyhood had cynthia schwartz who's now at strategy before was at 42 west working on it there and where, where, while I think Boyhood is such a better movie, you could maybe find some parallels there in terms of, you know, the way in which it is an underdog that at the same time is secretly maybe running thing, running the show, you know. But the thing about Boyhood is that it was the front runner all year long, and now it's the underdog, which could be a good thing. It right. could be. So if if you look at a, a standard two-way race... You know, it it that's one thing. But what if you have a race where everybody's got you know a chance? You know, where not really, but let's say there's, let's say that there's four movies really in strong contention for best picture, or or three. Um, that leads to a, a a great deal of unpredictability, especially when you have um, a preferential ballot and they're they're listing. Um, you know the movies in order of preference, and it's the top two that that have a chance to win. You know, right. that's the issue. And right. and so, how do you measure that? You can't. You can't say for certain that Boyhood's going to be Birdman or Birdman's going to. I have heard so many people say it's going to be Birdman picture, Linklater director, and I've heard just as many say it's going to be Linklater picture and. I mean, uh, Boyhood Picture and, and Inaritu Director. Well, let's go over to the foreign language category then, because that, that one is another interesting kind of question mark. I mean, it seems as though Ida is, is basically, you know, still the front runner, and it's available on Netflix, which means that it's, it's a lot of people are, are still, you know, watching it and processing it. But um, I went up to Pelham, New York, for a film club series that the film critic Marshall Fine hosts to, to get uh, to participate in a conversation for a screening of Wild Tales. And I saw, again, uh, a reminder that since Cannes, when I first saw this movie, it's very clear just how much of a crowd pleaser it is. Oh, totally. And, you know, Ida is is funny in some ways, but it's also got the, the sort of austere framework of this uh, European art film in a way that... Uh, may alienate people on some level. I'm not saying that it's not a front-runner in that category, but I do think... No, the Academy loves to admire art. Believe me, sure, they but, do. But Especially that... if they're moved by it. And remember, Ida, Ida is moving. I mean, it, it is very disturbing and, and very, very beautiful, and it's a Holocaust movie, and it's in black and white, and it has a cinematography nomination. But what you're bringing up is absolutely legitimate. The race is between these two films, and the difference between the way it used to work with the Academy and the foreign films is that in the old days, just a few years ago, um, there was a small group of people that saw all five films in a theater in L.A. or New York, and they had to sign a piece of paper saying they'd seen it. That is no longer true. And in those days, you could really push 
you know, by making it difficult to see the films even, you know, just by making them rare, you could push one movie into the forefront and it could be completely unpredictable. In this case, now you have the whole Academy voting, but you have no way of knowing if they've seen all five. In fact, the likelihood is that they have not seen them and that they will see one or two. And, and, and those two are likely to be Edith and Wild Tales. It almost comes down to how many of them have caught up to the fact that Wild Tales should be seen. And it's so, the word of mouth on it is huge. Sure. So, but do they go with the comedy or do they go with the high drama? This is the Academy. It's, an, it's a great sort of breakdown of possibilities, too, because isn't that what life is anyway? Comedy versus high drama, you know? It's constantly <laughs> fluctuating. They're both They great. tend to take the high road. That's my argument. Yeah, I, they I mean, do I, tend to take the high road. I but hope so, Wild but... Tales is fabulous, and I'd be thrilled. I've been championing yeah. it from the beginning. But, you know, it's interesting. I think all four of those movies were in your top ten list, as I recall. And, yes. um, you know, I, I gave Wild Tales, I put that in my best screenplay category in another year. It may have been in my top 10, but the other ones certainly were. So if anything, you know, just talking about that quartet, you know, I mean, it's a reminder of just what a, what a strong, you know, it was race a great year. Yeah. It was a really great yeah. year. Yeah. So I agree. Uh, let's, uh, let's expand beyond the Oscar stuff. We've covered all that. Uh, next week, we'll dig into it one last time before the ceremony. And then we'll, and the we'll Indie Spirits, which are going to be next week, and the, the weekend after this. Uh, yeah. So we'll have, we'll have a little bit more to dig into then. But uh, there's been some other interesting stuff going on that we would be remiss if we didn't address, starting with um, Amy Pascal, who uh, is now in a different position at Sony and uh, been speaking up a little bit about everything that went down uh, with the Sony hack and with her, quote-unquote, firing uh, and you wrote a really interesting piece today about sort of the the upshot of all of this stuff for for her well, career. Well, one of the things that, that I was I was I was already figuring, you know, basically as the news was being parceled out this week, there was the news about um, how she's getting this very deluxe. By the way, we are not feeling sorry for Amy Pascal um, uh, production deal, um, and the idea that that. You know, there's a, a label system at, at Sony now, which is very similar to the one over at Disney, where you've got Pixar and Marvel and and um, Lucasfilm and the Star Wars franchise and all of that. And then, you know, now they have it at, at it's not the same kind of label, but it's Tom Rothman, the ex-chief of, of Fox, and Jeff Robinoff, the ex-chief of Warners. These are very strong, powerful, knowledgeable, excellent uh, producers now, three of them now with Amy, and she's taking you know Marvel. So then there was the whole idea of how are they? She's taking um, Spider Man, which is the Marvel property that Sony owns and has kept separate from the Marvel universe. And they before the split occurred with with uh, the, the the Sony hack and and her, and her emails and all of that spilling yeah. out, um, she was already negotiating with. Kevin Feige over it, right? Marvel's and and that it's really universe. smart because I mean, as somebody who, uh, when I was a kid, I was a real comic book guy. Now I'm I'm a little bit more selective in terms of what I what I pay attention to, and I, I look at more kind of like indie stuff and not superhero stuff. But when I was a kid, Spider Man was was such a great character who was enhanced by the fact that he was still, even though he was a superhero. He was in this world of super The nerd in you yeah. could appreciate the nerd in him. Yeah, the nerd in him, but... The Peter Parker even, part. But even when he was Spider-Man, because he was part of the Marvel Universe, he was still kind of the nerd in that world. Yeah. You, know, you had the, these like really buff or, or slick 
characters like Iron Man and whomever, you know, Spider-Man was still kind of the goofball who's always making these geeky comments on the sidelines. And so by not making him a part of that world, this entire enterprise where they've been building out different movies that overlap has been missing a real crucial part of its ingredient. So I think it's a really smart maneuver to work him into that universe. And it would take a couple of years for us to see exactly how it plays out. But, you know, it's gone so well with the whole Avengers thing that I think it's promising. And if they get the right guy for the role, you know, even more so. Um, well, I think it's only smart because, you know, as we all know, in a world that is is uh, integrated and viral and where things pass from place to place, what the audience likes is to be part of this universe, this Marvel universe. And, and they have been so smart about keeping it consistent, working out the stories, moving them around, getting people together in the Avengers, getting each one established. And now... You know, Spider-Man's been missing, and now he can be part of that and just become part of this universe that people want to inhabit, and they can try to make it consistent, and it's it's only smart. Um, But what I love is the idea that Amy Pascal, in her interview with Tina Brown at uh, this uh, Women's Summit, basically you know, has, because she's gone through the fire, because she's gone through what any of us cannot even imagine, the horror of what that must have been like. Someone who's, she was, you can tell she sees a therapist (laughs) because she was able to sort of explain, you know, how she went through this and came out the other side sort of strangely liberated. And I want to see this liberated, amazing Amy. That's what I want to see. She needs to send some pointers to Brian Williams. Because it sounds like he's scraping together. He could use a therapist. <laughs> <laughs> so the other interesting story in the news this week was uh, John Stewart leaving The Daily Show, which overlaps in our world not only because we also talk about TV sometimes, but also because you know John Stewart made a movie last year and is also an influential force in the movie world. Somebody who hosted the Oscars, he has guests on his show and promotes movies that gel with his sensibilities. Uh, at the New York Film Critics Circle dinner this year, he presented the final award to, to Boyhood. He's a big Linkletter fan. He's a really interesting guy. And some people think, well, maybe he wants to keep making movies. Is he going? I think that's true. I think he had a good time doing it. I think the pressure of keeping up the quality on a daily show like that. Yeah. Yeah. is unbelievable. And I can't imagine that he did it as right. long as he did. I mean, yeah. some people sort of, you know, can can ride those waves and sustain it, but he was doing it at a very serious level. And I wonder, you know, I wonder how Charlie Rose does it too. I mean, it's, it's it, 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 which brings us back to David Carr. Yeah. I, I have to question myself a little bit too, you know, as just how, you know, people say I work hard and so forth. And, you know, you have to, you have to, you have to balance it. Yeah. You really do have to balance your life so that you're not stressed out all the time and you're finding pleasure in other things besides your work. Well, we'll wrap up momentarily so that you can do that today, but uh, maybe we should. I'm working uh, today, baby. <laughs> there, there's always opportunities for some, some, some way to, to, to find that balance. Uh, but we, we also have, uh, you know, movies opening this week that I think we, we should single out because, you know, the, it's not just the Oscars right now. Um, I, you know, was you not a first. huge uh, fan of, of some of the bigger films opening, but, but I can share with you two comedies that are opening in, in limited release. One isn't actually really in traditional release at all. It's available on BitTorrent of all places, but also in, on iTunes and a few other uh, uh, digital platforms. It, it received uh, 
uh, special screenings in 52 screen uh, theaters around the country yesterday, uh, and I moderated the one in New York with the director, uh, David Cross, who's making his directorial debut, and the movie's called Hits. And um, I didn't see this at Sundance when it premiered there last year in 2014, and I heard sort of mixed stuff, so I wasn't totally sure, and only checked it out when they asked me to moderate this thing, and I wound up finding that it, it was pretty great, but in, in, in ways that I wasn't expecting. It's, it's a very subtle comedy with Matt Walsh, who people may know is the kind of goofy, redheaded uh, character on Veep now. Um, and, and it's uh, basically about this guy in a small town in upstate New York who goes to city council meetings and complains about these small things, potholes, and nobody shoveling his driveway. And uh, basically a bunch of hipsters in Brooklyn discover this guy uh, on YouTube and turn him into a, a viral celebrity, intercutting him with footage from uh, uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington and turning him into this hero in a way that doesn't totally match up with kind of his more humble uh, sensibilities and it's actually a really funny in a very subtle almost like Mike Judge like way it's a very funny satire of the way that uh, you know kind of grassroots media operates now and the, the way that these narratives can kind of get out of control so I thought it was pretty great and it's it's available in all kinds of different places now so I highly recommend people check it out the other comedy that's opening uh, in, in limited release today is um, from New Zealand and it's called What We Do in the Shadows it's the latest film from Taika Waititi, who's a uh, really, actually, uh, terrific director overall. He made a movie called Boy a couple years ago, and before that, Eagle vs. Shark. And he worked on the TV show uh, Fight of the Concords with Jemaine Clement, who's also in uh, this new movie. And it's this hilarious kind of mockumentary about a bunch of vampires who live in a house together. And uh, it borrows the tropes of reality TV in a really terrific way to the point where it's incredibly believable. Like, what would a bunch of vampires who, you know, have eternal life and, you know, can only go out at night and, and seduce women and, and then go home do? And what would their personalities be like? And mostly, you know, they're, they're kind of awful people, but at the same time kind of weirdly lovable. And there, there's this really terrific kind of tension between their lifestyle and some neighboring werewolves and, and the way that it plays with genre uh, is is pretty great because to to some extent when I started watching it I almost felt like they had made a documentary I mean it's it's really that believable but the laughs are are so constant and so so expertly timed that I, I'm I'm I would love to call it the best comedy of the year but I can only go so far as to say it's the best comedy of the year so far and. Um, it's so different from the kinds of stuff that, that you might see in a more mainstream release. So I hope people check it out. Sounds like it's worth seeing. Um, I, you know, uh, do, 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 do we want to check out 50 shades of gray? I well, mean, I, I, I have to say <laughs> that I'm fascinated by the, everything about the way that this book hit the culture, why it's so popular, what made it such a torrid must read for so many people, most of them women, um, you know, and, and in trying to answer that, um, it's not a very good book. It's not very well written, but the people at Universal figured out, they saw that it was a standard classic old fashioned romance <laughs> with some, with some kinky, uh, frills on it. And, and they understood that it was another Cinderella story like pretty woman and that the girl gets made over and gets wealthy when the guy gives her all his gifts, you know, that it's a, it's a typical deluxe, you know, w wealthy fantasy. And, and one of my 
one of my favorite um, reviews of this movie because it has uh, obviously generated an enormous number, <laughs> really, really uh, uh, good good reviews. Is um, now I'm now I have to look it up so that I can uh, so that I can. Uh, I'm going to look up my own Twitter feed because I tweeted it. Um, but anyway, I would say that if you're curious about the culture and what is 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 generating uh, unbelievable amounts of of discussion and chatter, uh, you know, you, it is be you are beholden to check out uh, Fifty Shades of Grey, which I can safely tell you uh, is a lot better than the book. Um, yeah. Which is especially not since they much. spent a lot of money. You know, no, it's not hard. They spent a lot of money on really good. You know, one it of the people. Good. Who edited the yeah. movie is is the editor of Lawrence of Arabia, right. Ann V. Coates, who's like eighty nine years old right. or something, Amazing. and she's this wonderful woman. I've met her, and she's a lovely British uh, lady, uh, very proper. <laughs> but she did do the editing on. Um, she did do the editing on um, um, this Diane Lane scene on a train um, in. Uh, I'm blocking the name of the movie for some reason. Um, but she, it, it, this, it's a, it's a, it's that Richard Gere romance with Diane Lane where she, she's having an affair and she's sitting on the train. It's sort of a famous scene almost, uh, used in editing courses, you know, so she knows how to do that. And, and the, the editing, uh, and the, the shooting of the sex scenes, uh, remember we're talking about a woman director, Sam Taylor Wood, um, uh, now Sam Taylor Johnson. Um, she is, uh, you know, very good at this, uh, the, the scenes, you know, we don't get to see, uh, sex from the point of view, uh, of a woman very often. And, uh, I, I would argue that this was very well done in that regard. Right. Well, I mean, you know, it's a good-looking movie. Danny Elfman did the score. There are certain things to appreciate it about this and still find and it kind of ridiculous. I know. I, I would only point out that IFC uh, very smartly released a, a movie that they have with its own S&M hook called Duke of Burgundy uh, on digital platforms in a very limited release not too long ago, and that if people aren't totally on board with what Fifty Shades of Grey is, there is an interesting alternative. It's it's um, from this British director who last made a movie called Barbarian Sound Studio. And Duke of Burgundy, it's a lesbian romance of sorts. Uh, more, I would say, in the secretary vein in terms of, you know, it's not as creepy uh, about the kind of nature of the attraction the way that uh, Fifty Shades of Grey is, but it's also a very different kind of filmmaking style. So maybe start with Fifty Shades of Grey, but I- I'm just going to throw that out there. There are some interesting alternatives. Uh, All right, so I found, I found the quote, um, best line in the Fifty Shades of Grey review, where the money shots should be, we get shots of what money can provide. Anthony Lane, the New Yorker. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. So okay. on that note, yep. we've got plenty to think it, think over, and, and you are overdue for a, a walk outside. So get to it. Thanks, and we'll Eric. talk soon. Bye. Take care. Time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane. 
So shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.